Amen. Amen. Well, again, I too want to welcome you here to First Baptist Church. Uh, we're so glad that you've joined us uh, through all of our different online mediums. We're glad however you've gotten here this morning, uh, whoever invited you, we're so glad to have you here as a part of what we're uh, doing this morning. Um, it, it's interesting, I, you know, it's Palm Sunday, and so it almost doesn't feel like Palm Sunday unless you have the, the children marching around the, the sanctuary or the fellowship center. So uh, we'll see. Maybe at the end we can get Pastor Nathan and, and Aaron and Kurt to take some palm branches while Mike and I play, and they can march around the, the fellowship center for you waving some palm fawns. Uh, we do have a few out here. Uh, but we are, we are glad that you're here with us for worship this morning, uh, however it is that you've come to us. And we do trust that God uh, will continue to speak to us through this time together, even though we're, we're apart. I do want to remind you this morning, as you're sitting there at home, uh, one of the benefits of being there in your living room is that uh, you can adapt and adjust as we're going. And uh, so this, this morning, uh, we will be doing communion. You can see that actually elements up on our, our mantle here. Uh, we will be doing communion at the end. Um, so if you haven't gotten your elements together, you can do that while you listen. And uh, at the end of the service, we will be coming together to celebrate communion. Even though we're far apart, we will be drawn together uh, by the body and the blood of Christ and his Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we turn our attention now to the word of God. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. Lord, even now in the midst of these struggles and, and these difficult times that, that we find ourselves in, the truth is that you are still providing for us in amazing ways. And God, that your hand of favor is still upon us. Lord, uh, we thank you for, for food and we thank you for shelter. Lord, we know that there are, are many that, that struggle even to find that today. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace that we might reach out to them. Lord, one of the, the great miracles I've seen come about through this whole situation is that humanity has returned to humanity. And grace is in vogue. Lord, may that be a permanent change. Lord, and may we take the grace that you've shown us. And show it an extra measure to those that are in need. May we share with those that don't have. And God, may, we, may you move and work in and through that to make your gospel and your glory known. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning as we look at the truth of your word. That you would speak to us in very clear and apparent ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this morning I will not be preaching out of uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we're going to continue on with a series that we've been in in Genesis uh, in the beginning, and, and there's intentionality behind that. When we began this series uh, months ago and began looking at how we were going to do this, um, obviously there were things we were going to do. Actually, this morning we were supposed to be having our choir cantata, so... Um, we had to kind of, I had to kind of make a decision about where I was going to go with this, and I determined that we would continue going down the path that we've been on, looking at the patriarch Abraham and Sarah, and how their lives continue to move forward as they've come together with the promise of God, and as God's promise continues to expand. And now we're at this point where Isaac is finally coming onto the scene. Sarah and Abraham are finally going to receive a piece of their promise, and, and I think that's really pertinent to us as we think about even Palm Sunday and even further, more importantly, as we look towards Easter, as we think of the, the one and only son, the son of the promise, Isaac, 
whom Sarah and Abraham had waited so faithfully for for so many years. We think of the generations that subsequently waited for the promised one that would come in Jesus Christ. And next week as we come together and celebrate Easter, we will look at Isaac and Abraham heading up the mountain and the promise that God himself would provide a sacrifice. But this morning we'll be in Genesis chapter 21. And in Genesis chapter 1, we see a conflict begin to rise. There's, there's been conflicts that have come up uh, throughout the story of, of Abraham and Sarah and their march forward in the promise of God as they figured out how to live in the call. Several problems a couple of times, not just once, but at least twice, where Abraham pretends that Sarah is just his sister and someone try, tries to claim his wife for themselves. But here as we, we come to the final, uh, the final chapters of this, if you will, as we see the, the receipt of the promise, as they have Isaac come along, we see, um, we see a storm brewing between the two children of Abraham. We see the, the child of his plans, his and Sarah's plans, the Ishmael, who was born of their own power and their plan as they tried to move the hand of God. And then we see the child of promise that was born according to God's power and purpose. And we see them coming at odds with one another. And you know, we, we oftentimes want to make this a, a big thing. It's the warring of the people of God. But you know what, as I, as I read through this several times this week and as I've considered this message, I think some of what we see going on here is sibling rivalry. I mean, of course, it's sibling rivalry to like the nth degree, but sibling rivalry is something that I can very much relate to. Uh, I, have, I have seven siblings uh, that I grew up with, more or less, um, two of them biological and, and five, five of them by the grace of God, and I consider them all my siblings, uh, but there was some interesting time when we all had to merge and come together. When, when that w- which was was confronted with that which would be, where the reality of past fl- plans was confronted with the promise of, of what could be coming. And, and if you were to talk to my parents and, and my siblings, we would all note that that was a very interesting time, and, and it was a great time to some extent. It was a bad time. As the book says, it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. There was a lot of interesting interactions that took place, because when you take two homes, two different sets of of children from different sets of parents, and you put them together, and you try to to meld them into one, there's going to be some fireworks. And and this was particularly true in our case, because as our two families came together, it, it wasn't that there was this nice, neat, hierarchy in there. You know, a lot of times when you have two families come together, there's separation of ages. We didn't have any of that advantage. What we had was eight kids between the ages of 17 and 12. Eight kids between the seven ages of 17 and 12. That means that we had, by that point in time, all settled into our roles as children in the family. But here we now have all of these children coming together in an age where they understand what's going on. They understand the reality of possibly what's being gained. But I'm going to be really honest. A lot of us, as we came into that early stages, those early stages of our families coming together, there, there was concern about what was possibly going to be lost, if we were honest. 
Because now you don't just have the oldest child and the youngest child. In our case, we had two oldest children. Now, by the grace of God, my brother Andrew and I, uh, we were best friends before our parents got married. There's a year difference between us in age. But we, we were cool with one another. We hung out together. Our friendship, if anything, strengthened uh, during our high school years as we lived together. But you had two oldest children. Compounding the issue, we also had three youngest children. Now, you may be, you, you may be like, well, what, how, how does that work out? The math doesn't work on that. Well, we had my youngest brother, Jimmy, who was 12, and then my twin sisters, Kathy and Amy, who were also the same age. So we had three in that age group. And then we had, if you're keeping count, that's two and three, so five. We had three that were stuck somewhere in the middle. Not only did we have that reality going on, but we had to figure out, well, who was going to be the good kid and who was going to be the less good kid? Or who was going to be the good kid? Because let's be honest, in my family, and I'm pretty sure my sister Amber is watching this morning, we've had this discussion before, Amber had the bad kid, the bad girl thing, hands down, no competition. She was rocking that job for a long time. She is a great woman of God now. Once again, probably watching. I'm sorry, Amber. But... um. She, she's a great woman, but we, we, had, we had to work on that pecking order. Where, where did we fit? Who, who, who was going to do what? My, my, my dad, Terry, um, and my mom, Terry. And my dad, Terry, I remember them sitting us down early on and establishing that we are your parents in this house. You will not say, you're not the boss of me, you're not my dad, you're not my mom. We are in charge, we are a family. And, and that was a really meaningful thing for me, but at the same time, it didn't mitigate all of the struggles that we had to, to go through as a family to get to the point where we had some kind of equilibrium and balance and harmony in the family. And I think we see some of that going on. Now, obviously, it becomes a lot more pronounced because there's a reality of inheritance. There's a reality of blessing. There's a lot of things going on in Abraham's time that we just didn't have to deal with now. And we've got to keep that in context. There's concerns about legal ramifications between these two children, the child of their plan, the child of the promise, and how that was going to interfere ultimately with God's the outworking of God's plan long term or what they believed would be the the, the problems with the outworking of God's plan, plan long term. And so let, let's go ahead and look at this passage and see what we can see about God's promise in relation to Abraham and Sarah's plan and see how that maybe uh, comes together, converges with where we find ourselves in our own lives today. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21, we're going to read verses 1 through 20. And I'm reading from the NIV version this morning. It says, Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the very time God had promised him. And Abraham gave him the name Isaac to the son that Sarah bore him. And when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah that they would nurse children in their old age? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and on that day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar had, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham was mocking. She said to Abraham, get rid of the slave woman and her child. 
For that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to what Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water, and he gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy as he grew up, and he lived in the desert and became an archer. So we see this, this really rather tragic development in, in the story of Abraham and Sarah. And it's amazing to me as I consider this story uh, throughout as it goes along, how often there's a bittersweet component that goes a- along. What, what should have been simply a celebration of a great triumph and a, a great work of God in their life it is, is sort of soiled and the greatness of the moment is lessened. And really, if you consider how that came about, it's of no fault of God's. This is a situation that they themselves have created through their own power and their own planning. And I wonder how often we do that in our lives. The first thing that we have to address, though, and that that we have to take hope in and encouragement from as we consider this, this passage is this, that God always makes good on his promises. God always makes good on his promises. He, he was promised as, is faithful, and, and he will do for us exactly what he said he would do for us. Now, something that, that we have to keep in mind as we read this text is this whole scenario is setting a precedent. If we remember, those of you that have been around from the beginning of, of this series, that the series is called In the Beginning, the Patriarch. And as we started this, we began talking about how Genesis is, is not just one beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But, but a series of beginnings as, as God creates the earth, as we screw it up, and as God subsequently begins to restore some order to his creation, as God begins his, his plan and his work of salvation and redemption, ultimately to bring not just his particular people, Israel, back to himself, but ultimately to bring all nations back to him through the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ. But this whole scenario is new for Abraham and Sarah. God is setting a precedent with everything he does with them. Now, granted, Abraham and Sarah, by this point in their lives, have about 30 years of walking with God under their proverbial belts. They have 30 years of living in the calling that God has placed upon them. 30 years since God called out to them in Ur of the Chaldeans and said, Hey, come with me to a land that isn't your own, away from your people, away from your father's house, and I'm going to make you a great nation. 
I'm going to give you children as, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And they've been following God, but remember that all of that following God, all of that living in call, at least most of their living in that call thus far, has been an anticipation of this moment. Sure, they've, they've received some pieces of the promise, but the big piece of the promise upon which all of the rest hinges has been a pipe dream, has been something that they are looking forward to that seems incredibly unlikely and improbable, if not impossible, in their lives at this point in time. Also, we need to consider and remember that Abraham and Sarah have no Bible or Scripture to go back and study so they can find assurance and clarification of God's faithfulness and how he works. You and I, what a, what a blessing. As I, I've read through this text and considered Abraham and Sarah, I've realized over and over again what a blessing God's Word is to us. That in moments of darkness, in moments of struggle, in, in moments of trial and testing, we can go back to the Word of God and we can look at over and over and over and over again, ways that God has been faithful to his people throughout the past. We can see the great and many promises that God has made, not just to the people in days that are gone by, but, but to us in the here and now. And we can find encouragement from that. We can find a, a pattern that we can follow. We can find a way that, that we can see the ways that others have walked in the promise in the midst of, of doubt and insecurity and darkness. Abraham and Sarah don't have those same resources. Now, in fairness, they did have something that we don't have, which I think is, is pretty cool. They had oral histories of Adam and Eve, of Noah, and of a few others. But what's of particular interest for us in this case, as we consider the precedence of what God has done, is, is that it is quite possible that Noah himself was actually alive at the time that Abraham was born. If you, if you look at the dates and you look at what scholars are, are saying about it, there, there's a window of about four years either before or after Abraham was born that Noah was alive. So either Noah had just died before Abraham was born or Noah died sometime soon after Abraham was born, which, which is kind of interesting and neat if you think about it. There is the possibility that Abraham as a young child sat on Noah's lap course he would have been young enough that he wouldn't have remembered but but here's something that goes a step further shem would have been alive during the lifetimes of both abraham and sarah that that's really cool in my mind you know what that means because remember we're in a patriarchal society where where people lived in their father's house or lived close to their their extended family for the entirety of their lives which means that Abraham and Sarah, as they were growing up, in all likelihood, heard the stories of Noah and the ark from someone who helped build it and someone who was rescued by it. They possibly sat on the lap of Shem, sat at the feet of one who received the promise of God and the salvation, one who saw the rainbow of promise that God would not once again destroy the world through flood. They possibly sat on his lap, probably sat on his lap and heard the stories from the lips of one who experienced it firsthand. What an amazing gift that would have been. Sure, they didn't have the truth of Scripture. But what they did have is at least one account that was first person of someone who experienced the goodness and grace of God in their lives. But I could still understand how that would be difficult. 
it's difficult even now as we look at scriptures. Uh, to, that's why it's called faith. We, we are holding on to something that, that we hope beyond hope is true and that we know without knowing. That it's difficult. And, and so Abraham and Sarah, I would argue, as they are setting this new precedent of how God works and of creating a particular people for God, whom God is going to bless in this very special and particular manner through his promise, it's all new to them. They're figuring this out as they go. And so as we come to the birth of Isaac, it's this culmination of the promise of God in their life. This is the big one for them. This is the thing for which they have been looking forward. They could have gotten rich on their own through a wide variety of means. They could have found greatness on their own through a wide variety of means. But this child that was promised to them, only God could have done this. There's no mistaking it. So the birth of Isaac then is the end of the beginning of God's promise and plan to build a people for himself through Abraham and Sarah. It is the beginning of the end, or the end of the beginning of God's plan to begin bringing about salvation for all nations. God is starting the ball rolling. God is moving things forward at a a greater clip at this point. We can see how the plan is now beginning to take shape. God's plan and promise is beginning to come together. The passage tells us in verses 1 through 5 that that God was gracious to Sarah, that God did exactly as he said he would do, but that he did it in his timing. This is, once again, the central piece of the promise. Once again, that Abraham and Sarah would have a a son and that their progeny, their children would become so numerous that they would be like the stars in the sky and the sand of the seashore. But it all had to start with one. That one was crucial to the development of the rest. God had promised that through Abraham and Sarah, children would come. So Isaac, the one natural son of Abraham and Sarah, is a linchpin to the promise of God moving forward in the way that God had said it was going to happen. And I think there's an element of hope for us in this. There's an element of hope, certainly, and, and a faith booster, if you will, for Abraham and Sarah in their lives in this moment. Because by providing this most difficult and central piece of the promise, God creates avenues for confidence that he will provide for the rest. If God, can, if God can deliver on that which is seemingly and literally impossible, there's no part of his word that can't be trusted. It's not just that God is doing the unlikely. God is doing the impossible. A postmenopausal woman who throughout 90 years of her life was unable to conceive is now having a child. That is only God. And if God can deliver on that most impossible of pieces of the promise, then what part can he not be trusted for? What part can we not rely on him to follow through with? Luke 1, 37, just before the birth of Jesus, says that no word from God will ever fail. Isn't it interesting that these words in Luke are concerning another miraculous birth? Isn't it interesting that that it, These words are spoken of an unlikely mother, the Virgin Mary, 
who finds herself receiving the promise from God that he would do the impossible in an effort to bring about and provide for his promise, salvation. And just as God promised a son through Sarah and Abraham, God would bring about his son through Mary to bring about the ultimate fulfillment of his promise, the fulfillment of the promise that was made to Abraham and Sarah so long ago. And God has set a precedent of following through on that which seems difficult and impossible to us, but no word of the Lord shall fail. I think even, uh, again, about the words in Isaiah. In Isaiah 55, God tells us, Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the righteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from the heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth, and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will never return empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You know, I find this to be one of those passages that, are incre- that is incredibly overused and misused. We want to say that if we implant the word of God in people's hearts and minds, that it won't come back void. And, and I would argue that there's a sense to which I understand the intent behind that, but that is not what this passage is saying. And you and I can look at a great many people who we have taught the word of God who are not holding on to it. We hold on with hope that they will come back. The point of this is not what God's word does in us, but what God will do for us through his word. That while we may not be faithful to God's word, God will always, always, always be faithful to his word. While we might not be reliable to walk in the promise faithfully, God will be faithful to bring about the truth of the promise. That if God has said it, God can be trusted to do it. That God's promise will not come back void. That he will do exactly what he said he would do. God will be faithful. We see God again in in Genesis 21 and bring about the promise. And and I I think something we need to be aware of and think about and, and consider in our own hearts is that the fulfillment of God's promise should always be a source of joy, regardless of who the recipient is. The fulfillment of God's promises should always be a source of joy, regardless of who is the recipient. Sarah points out that she has found joy, she has found gladness, We look in verse 6, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. Remember the name Ishtak, Isaac, means he laughs. God would get the last laugh, but Sarah notes here that God has brought me laughter. God has brought joy to her heart. She says, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah that they would have nursed children? Yet I have borne him a son in Abraham's old age. God turns the scoffing disbelief, as we noted last week, of Abraham and Sarah into laughter of joy. God brought laughter, Isaac, into her life. As he fulfilled his promise, he returned joy to her heart. But pay attention, because it's not just them that are laughing. 
Those who may have laughed at the prospect and the promise of these very old people having children are now laughing in joy that God is great and that he provides. Let's be honest. The idea that a 90-plus-year-old couple are going to have children and nurse them is, is somewhat ridiculous. But how often does that which is ridiculous or brings about ridicule in our life ultimately bring about joy when God does what he said he would do? Remember that sometimes holding on to God's promises will make us the objects of ridicule for a time. I wonder how many times Sarah and or Abraham talked to people that they met or people that they knew about the promise of God. I wonder how long they, they, they talked about that as, a, as something that's of great potential before they finally started keeping it to themselves. Maybe they didn't. But you would have to argue that there were certainly people that thought them insane, ridiculous, and silly for holding on to this promise that is so verbose and grandiose and beyond the realm of the reasonable. Sometimes holding on to God's promises for us will make us the objects of ridicule. Did, did Paul not himself note that he was thought a fool for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? When we proclaim the promises and the truth of God, as impossible as it often sounds, there are some that will think us ridiculous and foolish. But joy is contagious. And as we receive the promises of God and live in the joy of his presence and salvation, many will come to faith through our example and through our continuing to walk in God's calling. This is particularly true when we find joy and hope in desperate and dark times. You know what the world needs to most see from us right now in the midst of the struggle and the storm that we're in? They need to see hope. They need to see joy. And they need to see that we still believe in the great many promises of God. They, they need to see us practicing the presence of God, relying on his strength and believing that he will be good to his word and that he will take us through this. They need to see, as it says in James, that, that we are drawing close to God through this trial, that we find joy in the midst of the trial and the struggle. And that joy will become contagious and one day when God brings about the fulfillment of his promise and he delivers us from what we find ourselves in, we can point to him and say, God has done this great thing. And the joy will continue to spread. But there's a warning in the midst of this because not everybody was happy about the deliverance and the promise that God had brought about. It says in verse 8 and 9 that the child grew and was weaned. On the day that Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. Notice that Ishmael and Hagar aren't so happy about this blessing that God has brought about. It, it stirs jealousy in their own hearts. I, can, I don't know about you, but I can relate to this. I can relate to this. 
I mean, how, how many times in your own life or in my life have we looked forward to what we believe to be the promise and potential of what God would do in our lives? We held on tightly. We walked faithfully through the difficult times, believing that eventually the, the promise would be fulfilled for us in a certain way. And then we see someone else receiving what we believe ourselves to deserve. How often do we look at the blessing that we see in someone else's life and we say, that should have been mine. And rather than celebrating the goodness of God in their lives, we bemoan what we believe to be the absence of the blessing of God in our own. We need to be careful that we don't lose sight of the blessings. Remember that God had promised to Ishmael that he would make him a nation as well. Sure, the the. The promise that God had given Abraham that that ultimately all nations will be blessed was going to come about through Isaac. And, And surely Ishmael knew that, but was hoping against hope that he would be that promised child. But but there was still blessing in Ishmael's life. He was still a son of Abraham. He still had the blessing of God upon his life. But note that in this moment he can't see that. All he can see is the threat that Isaac presents to his version of the promise, to his plans, to his potential. Brothers and sisters, friends, may we not look at the blessing in God's, of God in the lives of others and see it with jealousy and, and allow, allow it to stir strife and discord in our hearts. May we be happy for those that God bless. May we celebrate and have joy with them. And push push the spirit of jealousy out of our lives. Again, I think there's a caution for us as we consider the lives of Abraham and Sarah. And we consider even this moment. Yes, we do need to remember that God will always make good on his promises. But we need to be careful. For plans born out of impatience tend to create problems with our experience of the promise. Plans born out of our impatience tend to create problems with our experience of the promise. Our plans, without regard to God's will particularly, often bring about immediate results. They also, however, tend to carry consequences that linger. We see that in the lives of Abraham and Sarah. You see that Sarah has a big problem. Sarah, of all people, has the biggest problem with what's going on. We go to verse 10. Sarah says, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Sarah has a serious problem with what's going on. But something that we need to keep in mind is is this. The question is, Whose plan was it that brought Ishmael to bear in the first place? Well, we look back at Genesis 16, verses 1 through 4. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go and sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abraham agreed. To what Sarah had said. Of course he did. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. And he slept with Hagar and she conceived. Whose plan was this in the first place? It was Sarah's. 
Sarah's the one that looked at this and said, you know what? I'm not going to have children. God hasn't given me any kids. This probably isn't going to happen. But I've got another idea, Abram. I've got this slave girl. Let's do what everybody else is doing. And you take her as your wife. And you have children. And we'll raise her child as a surrogate for me. It was Sarah's plan. Yeah, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to, to put unnecessary blame on Sarah. Abraham went along with it. I mean, you got to think. Abraham's like, I get another wife? Sounds good to me. A- Abraham walks along with his plan. He chose to do what, what, what was laid before him. And they did produce a son. But their plan grows out of a lack of patience for God's timing. And let's be real, it demonstrates a severe lack of faith. They do what they do and they move forward with their own plan and their own power because they struggle to believe that God is going to deliver on what he's promised. More than likely, they struggle to believe that God has the power to do what he said he would do. And I think that you and I do this often ourselves. We get tired of waiting for God to do what God said he would do. We get, we wait, get tired for waiting for, for God to bring about deliverance through, through means that are in his power and plan. And, and I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't be working and moving and doing things in our lives. I'm not saying that all of our plans are bad. But you and I both know that there are times, early and often, when you and I look at what's going on in our lives and we look at what's going on in our world and we get impatient with God and we say, God just isn't doing what I think he should do. God isn't moving the way that I think he should move. I don't know that I can trust his pl- promise, but it's okay, God. I'm going to help you because I have this great plan to move your promise along. Our insistence, though, on pursuing our own plan to force God's hand says as much about what we do believe in God as it does about what we don't. Think about what Sarah and Abraham's movements to bring about God's plan through their own power said. It shows that they believe that God is not necessarily for them in the way that they had once believed. At a minimum, it shows that that they, and in our cases, we, don't believe that God is working for us in meaningful ways to bring about the fulfillment of his promises. Further, it shows that we struggle to believe that God is capable of delivering on what he said. And finally, and most egregiously, it shows that we believe that we know what's best. We show that we believe we can do it on our own better than God himself can do it. The struggle and the problem with this is this, though, that our plans often end up competing with God's promise for our affection and loyalty. Our plans often end up competing with God's promise for our affection and loyalty. Sarah, in verse 10, sees the storm brewing. She sees Ishmael as a very real threat to her son and to his receipt of the promise. So she seeks to have Abraham cast him out. Notice Abraham's response, though, in verse 11. It says, The matter distressed Abraham, Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. We naturally love that which we create. We, we find pride in that which we've put together. We find, find great joy in that which is made of our own plans and power. We find great joy in that which represents who we think we are. Ishmael quite literally looked like Abraham. He was his son. 
Make no mistake, Ishmael was his first son. And Abram loved him. If we go back to Genesis 17, we look at verse 18 of chapter 17. God begged, Abraham begs God, Abraham, this is Abraham fell face down and he laughed and said to himself, will, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah build ch- bear children at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Abraham begs God, God, please bless Ishmael. Let Esh- Ishmael be the son. Let my son have your blessing. He, he wanted his plan to take the place of what God had promised. Abraham loved both of his children, I'm sure. But as long as both were present, they would be at battle with one another and would present problems for, for the ultimate fulfillment of the promise. The truth is that Sarah's concerns weren't unfounded. She, she wasn't particularly wrong. Though her method of dealing with it may seem a bit harsh to us today, I I think it may have been necessary. Because here's the truth. God, God won't stop us from pursuing our own plans. Ultimately, you and I are going to have to choose to let go of one or the other. Either we're going to cling to his promise and we're going to pursue that wholeheartedly or we're going to cling to our plan. But as Jesus himself says, we're not going to serve two masters. We're not going to give priority and preeminence in our lives to two different things. Ultimately, one will win out. Note in verse 12 that God tells Abraham not to be distressed. But he already is. Abraham has a difficult choice to make. Will he follow the lead of the Lord and the prodding of his wife? Or will he hold on to his plan for the promise? God is not the one who put Ishmael out. Abraham has to do it himself. I think that's true in our lives. God is not going to make us relent and relinquish control in our lives. God isn't going to take our plans away from us. God isn't going to realign our priorities for us. You and I have to do that for ourselves. God puts that responsibility on you and I. That we have to to, to relinquish control and bend the knee to him as Lord. We have to choose to follow him. He's not going to make us. Are we willing to give God control? Are we willing to give up our plans and our power for our purposes, for the purposes and the promise of God and his timing and in his power? Again, I'm, I, part of me looks at this in my, my modern eye, looks at this in, in my modern ear, hears this, and I feel like this is uber harsh, that God would cast out a child? Now, granted, he's a little older, But I think, could they not have coexisted? Could not, God have not have worked out a plan where they could have figured out how to make this work together? I'm going to argue that as we look at this precedent continue to develop, as we look through Genesis, we see the answer in Isaac's own children. Remember, Isaac has two children, Jacob and Esau, who are 
twins. And, and God says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And what God is really saying by that is I've chosen Jacob to be the child of promise. And, and Esau is not going to be that child of promise. And what happens as they grow older? These, these children who are completely by birth, they're twins. They shared the womb together. What happens to them as they grow side by side, both of them believing that they are going to be the child of promise? They war. They fight. They battle. And it consistently throughout the lives of Isaac and his family creates a battle over who, who will win out, the, the plan of man or the promise of God. I'm going to argue that what Abraham had to do with Ishmael and Isaac, though exceedingly difficult, was absolutely necessary in that time. That as we consider our lives, it is absolutely necessary that we, we at times have to put out the thing that we love, that thing that we have planned for, that thing that we have worked for in our own power, that we have to put that thing out of our lives if we're going to be able to truly pursue the promise of God and his power in its fullness. Our plans, born out of our impatient impatience, will always put us at odds to some degree with the promise of God. So what do we do? We need to be patient and wait for God to work in his timing. So we consider the lives of Sarah and Abraham and their plan in comparison to the promise of God. We need to be reminded to be careful not to settle for the good thing we can create in the moment at the expense of, of the great thing that God has in store for the future. We need to continue to focus on the promise and what lies ahead of us. Note that God still redeems the mistake of Abraham's life. God creates a purpose for Ishmael and places a blessing on his life. God can redeem even our most egregious mistakes and the plans we've pursued in our own power. Nothing is wasted with the Lord. But we need to be patient and wait for his timing so we don't even have to make that choice. And we need to remember that God is always right on time with his promises, even if his timing doesn't fit in with our plans. Had Abraham and Sarah just been patient, had they just trusted God to do as he said he'd do in his timing, they wouldn't have created as much heartache for themselves and for others. And regularly throughout Scripture, we see that God's promise is followed by a command to wait. So many problems in our lives are birthed out of our impatience. We get tired of waiting for God to do what he says he'll do in his word. So we try to help him out and force his hand. And as a result, we find ourselves in a hot mess of our own making, trying to figure out how we can make the results of our plan and the blessing of God's promise come together as one. You know, sometimes what we need to do is simply repent of our failures. To get back in line and to follow God and his calling for our lives. To put our plans out to pasture. And trust the Lord to lead us in the power of his promise. Knowing that he will deliver in his time. According to his purposes. According to his plan. For his glory. May we trust God, whatever the circumstance and situation we find ourselves in, knowing that he will deliver, that God himself will provide the means for our salvation and for his promise. Will you join me in prayer? 
Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. I thank you for your great love with which you've loved us. God, may we be reminded of that love and your power and your presence and your promise today. May we lean on it, even in dark times when we can't see. May we place our hope and our trust in you, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, we have the privilege of taking communion together. I'm going to invite the band back up on the stage with me, and we're going to lead you together in communion. If you have your elements there in your house, I invite you to to take them out and to get them ready at this point in time, as we do the same here. One over here, guys. Mike. Mike. The scripture tells us that on the night that Christ was betrayed, he took bread. After he'd given thanks, it tells us that he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Scripture tells us that in the same manner, Christ took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take it as often as you do it in remembrance of me. In remembrance of the great and mighty works of God in our lives. In remembrance of the salvation that he himself provided through the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. Today we take these elements and we are reminded that this is his body broken for us. And we are reminded that this cup is his blood shed for us and poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And we take it in remembrance of him. Father God, we thank you for these great gifts that you have given through your own power, for the sake of your own promise, and for your glory. God, though we are far apart this morning, may we be reminded that we are brought together as your body, through the breaking of your body and through the shedding of your blood. May we be reminded of the sacrifice that you have made for us. And as we look forward to the remainder of Holy Week, Towards the greatest of all Fridays, when you suffered, your blood was shed, your body was broken for the forgiveness of our sins. May we be reminded that you paid it all. May we find hope and healing in your power and presence, knowing that you are here with us. In Jesus' name, amen.